Australia's tax news podcast. Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 90 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. We always talk about trusts, but how do you actually set one up? Who needs to be involved and who does what? So I went to see Paul McEnroe of Cleary Hall in Brisbane, who is a trust lawyer and does a lot of work around trusts. I started by asking Paul, who actually does the setup? Is there usually a lawyer involved or an accountant? Here's Paul. A trust is normally established in the ordinary sense by your lawyer or your accountant. They will be the settler in most circumstances and they'll contribute $10 nominal settlement sum. So once you have the terms of the trustee, the name trustee, a list of beneficiaries and the settlement sum of $10, you have a trust. Don't you also need an appointer who appoints the trustee? Yes, so that will be one of the roles of the trust again. So yes, there'll be an appointer. In theory, you don't need one, but in all modern trust deeds, there is one because that is what we call ultimate controller of the trust. If I have the ability to change the trustee, well, then I have ultimate control of the trust. So if I don't like what the trustee is doing, I can replace them without without their consent. I control the trust ultimately. Ordinarily, the client who the trust is being set up for will be the primary beneficiary and the appointer whether they're the trustee individually or they put a company in which they're the director and shareholder of, that's up to the client. From an asset protection perspective, it's better that it is a company, but it, it will depend on what the activities of that trust are as to whether they want to put a company there. Trustee and beneficiary need to be two different people. The trustee can't be a beneficiary? Well, they can, but they can't be the only beneficiary. So if I hold an asset on trust for me, there isn't any trust, <laughs> it's just me. Um, but if I hold an asset on trust for me and you, there is a trust because there's more than one beneficiary. I, I have to decide between you and me as to who is going to get access to the income from that asset, the capital from that asset. That's okay. But you can't, you can't be the trustee and the only beneficiary. There has to be a group of beneficiaries. So, And the settler can't be the trustee and can't be the beneficiary? They can, but there are tax consequences for why you don't have that. So for tax purposes, never have the settler and the beneficiary in one person. That's right. Yep. So, And that's why it's always the case that the settler is a completely independent party to the beneficiary list, really. And I've had circumstances where we've had to, it was a Western Australian job where accountant ordered an online trust where you just fill out the details on the screen and made a mistake and put the set law, put the client's name. So the set law was the client. He was the primary beneficiary. I think he was even a trustee. His wife was also a named beneficiary and the strategy we were doing required a trust asset to be transferred to the spouse. And the way the terms of the trust deed were was that you're a beneficiary, except if you're related to the set law. So it turned out that, well, this person wasn't 
a beneficiary. Now, we rectified it and we got everyone on board to say, well, it was just a typo and we need to rectify the situation. That's a good scenario where everyone says, oh, that was just a mistake. But if it was the intention that the settler be someone who is a beneficiary, it can have adverse consequences. But the settler being also the trustee, that, that's okay? Look, I would shy away from it. I wouldn't do it. That's really the answer. You just mm. shouldn't. You should have a th third party independent person as the settlor. There are trusts around that are established by granddad, for example. Granddad is the settlor. He, he settles some assets on trust for his family. Now, it's likely that he will exclude himself from being a beneficiary of the trust, but the settlor really shouldn't have any other role in that trust, whether it be trustee, beneficiary or, or appointer. Mm -hmm. So the settlor pays $10 into the trust. How does how do the rest of the assets come into the trust? The rest of the assets come in by any manner of ways, borrowings from a bank or a related party, gifts to the trust. So an individual might have lots of money in their bank account and they make a gift to the trust. So can this now be the parents? So, for example, if the parents want to set up a family trust, they ask their accountant to be the settler. Yep. Now the trust has a bank account. Can the parents, after these $10, now transfer money into they the They can, trust? absolutely. And that often is the way trusts work. Yeah, there'll be money contributed. In a perfect scenario, you contribute it as a gift so that that money is put into the trust And it's taken away from the individuals who have risk in a business setting. Or, so in that way, now the trust has a million dollars, for example, a million and ten dollars. So it can then go and buy assets. But how do you book this? So you debit bank and then you credit yeah. what? And this is the part I hate <laughs> that accountants ask me. Look, it's, it's really an increase in equity and it's usually just recorded as gift of equity to the trust and put in the equity section. That, that's how I kind of describe it. I don't know if that makes sense to an accountant. But, yeah, just a gift to equity. In the same way your settlement sum is a gift to equity, isn't it? Yeah. Because you've got this equity amount. Yeah, how did it get there? Yeah, to bank. Exactly. Credit equity. Yeah, so that that's in the same way you, you put the settlement sum in, do the same way for that gift. It's no different. It just sits there as an equity amount. But once the parents have paid a million dollars into the trust, now they can no longer take it out. It can only be the trustee who now deals with this cash. Yeah, that's right. So once it's they might be the trustee. But yeah, once it's a gift to the trust, as soon as it's received and accepted, well, it's no longer the individual's money. Mm. It's a gift. And the parents can donate this one million, even though they are the trustees of the trust. Yes. So the trustee can contribute yeah, assets. That's right. And I mean, if mum and dad want the money back, they can borrow it back, or the trustee can make a capital distribution back. Now, borrowing is the preferred method because then if mum and dad buy their house, for example, the trust can take a mortgage over the house for that million dollars. And that's a common asset protection strategy is to put the value of your personal estate in a trust and borrow the money back or lend the money back to mum and dad to go and buy their assets and take security over the assets. So that's a common asset protection strategy. How does that work? So mum and dad go and buy a commercial property. Yep. Do they buy the commercial property in the name of the corporate trustee or do they both buy the property in their own name? Probably a commercial property. Uh, the purpose of having the trust would be to buy it in the trust, I would have thought. So in that scenario, mum and dad gift a million dollars to the trustee. 
the trustee goes and buys the asset. And it's a trust asset. And then where does the loan come in? Well, the loan doesn't come into that. Okay. What I was saying is in a scenario where mum and dad, they want to buy their main residence. But if you buy a main residence in a trust, for example... Then you can't claim the main residence. Correct. But if you gift the money that you would have spent on your house to the trust, the trust lends that money to mum and dad. Mum and dad buy their main residence. But the trust it, has a mortgage of The trust is the bank. So the trust acts like Commonwealth and lends the money so mum and dad can borrow it. Mum and dad take a mortgage out with their trust and in that way there's asset protection over the property to protect a million dollars. Obviously there's potential capital growth there, but there's a million dollars of protected money in their main residence. Yes, because if a creditor now comes and wants to claim the main residence exemption... The, the trust has a mortgage on this secured creditor. That's right. It. Yeah, so, so the other unsecured creditor comes second. That's right. So if mum and dad get sued because... They run a high-risk business whatever, or something. Yeah, for whatever purpose. One of the first steps is working out well, what assets do they have. And if they went bankrupt, that would be examined as to what assets they have. They'll say, well, we own this property. It's worth $1 million, but I have a loan to this trust. It's secured by a mortgage. And that loan's $1 million. In that way, well, it nets itself out that there's no equity there and that is how you gain that asset protection. Now, there's some other aspects which I'll cover very briefly is that when you make that gift, for bankruptcy purposes, there's a, a general clawback period of four years. So if you went bankrupt inside of four years, a trustee in bankruptcy, they'll have to do work for it, but they could claw back that $1 million dollars. If that is an asset protection strategy you, you need to do to protect yourself well, then you need to make sure that don't go bankrupt in that time. <laughs> I mean, that's a common strategy that we would do and, and it can happen whether you've got the money or whether you've actually just got the house with equity. One last question regarding the setup of trusts. Yep. We've spoken about the settler. Coming back to the appointer, does a trust always need an appointer? Look, modern trust deeds, the answer is yes. They all have a, a spot for the appointer. And, in, and the appointer in practice, also needs to be a third party. No, generally it will be the primary beneficiaries, so the named beneficiaries. If I had a trust, me and my wife would be the appointer. That's generally how I would, I would structure our family circumstances so that her and I make the decision if we're not happy with who the trustee might be. In, in that scenario, in a family trust scenario... It's often less critical because unless there's a family Everybody. divorce, everyone's all on the same page. Everyone, you know, we all sit together and this is what we're doing with these assets. Hey, I think we should sell that asset. Okay, let's do that. Everyone agrees and we transition quite easily. But if you were to put someone else in charge of your trust, then that role becomes critical. Or if you want to pass control of the trust to particular children, for example, you might have a, a number of trusts then that role becomes critical as to who you put in charge of that trust. And it may be that you want to pass control to your child, but you want to make sure that if your child passes away, their spouse doesn't become the controller by default and it goes back to your other child, for example. So you can work those mechanisms out. In most scenarios, it will be the primary beneficiary will be that appointer as well. There are less strict rules around the appointer as opposed to the settler. Correct. There are very strict rules about that the settler can't be the beneficiary and shouldn't be the trustee, yep. but 
the appointer is basically free, apart from the yeah. trustee itself, because of course the trustee can't appoint itself. Apart from the trustee itself, yeah. anybody can be an appointer. Yeah, any absolutely. beneficiary, any third party. That's right. It, it's really who the client wants to put in ultimate control of the trust. Oftentimes, people might have their parent so that they can, in a way, try to inoculate themselves from any argument that they are the ultimate controller. In theory, it doesn't matter. And the pointer is not relevant for asset protection or family law courts, etc. The, the courts don't look at who is the pointer. They look at who is the beneficiary and who received how much, but they don't look at the pointer. Asset protection... Yes, there's, there's no issue there. Liquidators and trustees in bankruptcy have, over time, tried to say that the appointer role is a proprietary right which should vest in the trustee. Now, the courts have said that that's not the case and that it's a personal role to that person. Now, whenever someone is going into bankruptcy, one of the first things that they will look to do is change the appointer role to someone else. They want to walk away, and that's okay. But in theory, it doesn't necessarily need to be that way because it is a personal role to that person. It's not a property right that vests in the trustee. Family court is different. What the family court look at is whether the trust is the alter ego of the party to the marriage or party to the relationship. So that's the term they've used, is the trust the alter ego. Now, there are cases where the appointer is the husband And therefore, it will, in theory, really, it's just the trust is being administered according to his wishes because he holds most of the offices in that trust. There are other cases, one called Morgan and Morgan, where two brothers were in those roles, trustee and appointer. And the court said, well, no, it's not really the alter ego. The brother's there. He makes his independent decisions. And they obviously believed that those decisions were independent of the party to the marriage. And there was some protection. Now, we always say it's going to be a matter of evidence, not... I can't say we, if you put you and your sister as the appointers, you're safe from the family court. It's a matter of evidence. Is the trust just the alter ego of the individual? If it is, then it's likely to be an asset of the marriage. But just having your family member in there doesn't, doesn't make the, the difference. Settler or anybody could write the trust deed. It doesn't have to be done by somebody registered or licensed. That's right. But then the trust deed needs to be registered. In New South Wales, that attracts stamp duty, but in Queensland, it doesn't. In New South Wales and a number of other states, Tasmania is one, I think Victoria is another, you need to stamp the trust deed. And New South Wales has a $500 stamping fee. What that is really about is about producing that document as evidence in court later. So there are certain rules which say if a deed should be stamped and it's not, it, it can't be introduced as evidence in that court. Plus, obviously, the stamp duty law says if you're going to establish a trust in New South Wales, then you have to stamp it. In Queensland, we did away with that in the early 2000s, so no longer need to stamp a trust deed. And the reason for that is... The law says when they rewrote the Stamp Duty Act, they said only dutiable transactions need to be stamped. And because the creation of a trust over 
is not a dutiable transaction because money is not dutiable property, you don't need to stamp the trust deed. I think if the trust, if the trust is set up with less than $10, then you need to? No, because it's set up with any amount of okay, cash. Okay, any amount. Because cash is not dutiable property, you don't need to stamp it. I see. If I were to declare a trust over my house, for example, the land, then that would be dutiable. So that dutiable transaction would be dutiable. But because a, a trust is ordinarily established over $10 being cash, it's not dutiable. Not being dutiable just means you don't have to pay stamp duty, but do you still need to hand the trust deed in somewhere? No, no there's no register for trust deeds in Queensland. And I guess the, the responsibility, I don't believe there's a register per se in New South Wales or any other state. It's just that they have to get submitted for stamp duty. If, for example, you're disclosing in, in Queensland, you're disclosing that you own the land as trustee, then you have to submit a copy of the trust to the titles office. So in that way, there's a register for land purposes, but not just a central register of trusts. Does the land register <coughs> list the uh, trust relationship? It can. So it's up to the trustee to disclose. There's no duty to disclose. You don't have to tell land title register that you're owning the asset as trustee, but you can if you want to. And how it's recorded is ABC Proprietary Limited, and then they will it will say as trustee under, and they'll give it a, a dealing number, which is a way you can search that number and get a copy of the trustee. But you don't need to say, I'm owning it as trustee. And I, I believe in Victoria, they don't want to know about trusts. So if you own it as trustee, they don't want to know about it, except in maybe some, some consideration aspects that they don't want to record on title. And I think New South Wales may be the same. I see. So Victoria and New South Wales don't record the trust relationship in their land register, but Queensland can. can. Yeah, that's right. somebody in New South Wales or Victoria or anybody anywhere outside of Queensland create a trust based in Queensland? Based on Queensland? Yeah. Leading on from that is whether you can do it in South Australia where there's no perpetuity date. I think the answer is if you have no real connection to that state, I think it's a bit hard if you don't own any assets in that state in the trust. If you don't live in that state, don't know that there's a clear-cut answer That because, because it's yeah because the jurisdiction is Queensland and the trustee. There is a document provider based in Queensland, and accountants use this document provider because they are based in Queensland and hence no stamp duty. Yep. So it's just the location of the document provider being in Queensland already enough to create a connection. I guess if they're the the settlor of the trust, that may be enough connection to the state. The only problem with doing that is if you then try to rely on the trustee in court at some later point and that argument became a live issue. I would rather have paid the $500 stamp duty in New South Wales than have to fight that issue at some point. So all these SMSFs that are created with the documents from this document provider in Queensland yep. run the risk of having the deed not holding up in court because they had no connection with Queensland. They just said the trust is created in Queensland. I don't know the answer to that issue. I guess what I'm saying is that lawyers, particularly litigators, try to find any argument that helps their cause. And if that's one of them that may be a live issue, well, you may have to face it. I 
I think the point I was trying to make is that... It's just less risky. For the, for the sake to... of everything you're going to do is in New South Wales, to me it makes more sense that your trust is... Is the jurisdiction is New South Wales. The Trust Act law that you're going to base it on is New South Wales because you live there, all of the assets are there. I think that that makes more logical sense. I don't know that there's a hard and fast rule that it has to be. But if you're in a litigation fight, they'll pull out any, any questionable thing that they can. And if that is the one issue that wins or loses, I think for the sake of the $500 stamp duty fee, it's worthwhile housing it in, in the state you're in. That's, that's been the view I've taken. So in New South Wales, the trust doesn't come into existence until the trust deed has been stamped and one has paid its stamp duty? No, I think it would come into existence as soon as, as, it's, as, signed, as it's signed. But to then hold up in court, it needs yeah, to be and stamped. and it needs to be stamped within that reasonable period. I've had stamped deeds that were based in Queensland that were established before the change to the law and had to go to the tax office and say, they didn't get this stamped in 1997, will you please stamp it? And they did for nominal fee. It was a worthwhile exercise fixing that problem because banks will ask the question, well, this deed hasn't been stamped, we need it stamped because... But stamping doesn't involve an extra stamp anymore. It just involves the words stamped and signed on September the yeah. 30th. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, in Queensland, we still use a, certain documents we can stamp in-house, so in, in the law I firm. I see, so this hot wax and... No, no, nothing. no. When I say stamp, probably like a pink stamp, you know, okay. just that sort of thing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's more that just an ink stamp rather than the old hot wax type, traditional type stamp. Mm. I see. But in, in New South Wales, where you have to pay the $500... Do you have to send the deed in to somewhere? Most law firms can in-house stamp. Oh, I see. Yeah. SAO Global, I think, do them. Most law firms, if they're establishing it, they'll be able to do it for you. So to set up a discretionary trust, you need a settlor who is an independent person, a trustee, a trust assets, generally a $10 settlement sum, and a set of named beneficiaries and a range of beneficiaries from that group of named persons. Welcome back. So the appointer is the one in ultimate control of the trust. The focus tends to be on the trustee, but it is the appointer that actually holds the strings in the end. In the next episode, episode 91, Paul McEnroth will talk about the different options you have to structure a trust, especially around unit and hybrid trusts, trust cloning and trust stripping. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for the support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.